you know, this initiative isn't just about arresting bad guys. It isn't just about putting numbers on the board or protecting the treasury and Medicare and Medicaid. It's about helping people. It's about protecting individuals in the communities that we're targeting. And it's about uh, saving lives ultimately. From the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., this is The Justice Beat. Welcome to The Justice Beat, where we sit down with top leadership to chat about the department's mission, activities, and priorities. Today, we welcome the criminal division, or as we say here, CRIM. They develop, enforce, and supervise the application of federal criminal law and prosecute a broad array of cases. To give you just a taste of the scope of cases they handle, offices in the criminal division cover topics from money laundering, narcotics, child exploitation, computer crimes, human rights, and much more. In today's episode, we discuss how DOJ is combating the opioid crisis. Opioids are a class of drug that include the illegal drug heroin, synthetic opioids such as fentanyl, and pain relievers that are legally available by prescription, such as oxycodone, hydrocodone, codeine, morphine, and many others. According to the CDC, from 1999 to 2018, almost 450,000 people died from an overdose involving opioids, including prescription and illicit opioids. Brian Rabbit, the acting assistant attorney general for CRIM, discusses how his division focuses their efforts on this crime, why time is of the essence in these cases, and what the department is doing to combat this epidemic. Principal Deputy Director for Public Affairs, Matt Lloyd, leads the conversation. Here's Matt. Matt Lloyd. I'm the Principal Deputy Director of Public Affairs at the Department of Justice, and I also serve as the spokesperson for the Criminal Division. I'm here today to interview Brian Rabbit, who's the Acting Assistant Attorney General of the Department's Criminal Division. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me here today, Matt. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and maybe your path to the, that got you to the Justice Department, if you will? Sure. You know, Matt, I grew up in, uh, in Virginia, in the Northern Virginia area, and I've lived in the Washington, D.C. area my most of my life. Um, I came back here after school, after law school at Virginia uh, and clerking and uh, went to work at a, a law firm here in town. Uh, and I was there for uh, close to seven years. Uh, in uh, 2017, uh, after the president won, I joined the uh, White House Counsel's Office uh, where I worked for, you know, roughly a year. I moved over to the SEC where uh, I worked for the co-directors of enforcement initially, focusing on uh, financial fraud in the SEC's enforcement program. Um, and after a little while, I moved upstairs to work for the chairman of the SEC, uh, Jay Clayton, uh, who I'd become uh, close to. And I advised him on a whole host of matters, including uh, enforcement and financial fraud matters. In uh, uh, late 2018, uh, when Attorney General Barr, now Attorney General Barr, uh, was nominated, I moved over uh, from the SEC to the Justice Department and worked with him on his confirmation. Uh, and when he uh, uh, was confirmed in February of 2019, uh, I stayed on as his chief of staff uh, for the better part of a year uh, before moving down here to the criminal division in March of this year. Maybe give us a little bit of background on how your current job as uh, acting assistant attorney general in the criminal division is different than uh, the chief, chief of staff job. 
Absolutely. You know, the chief of staff job is is incredibly interesting. It's uh, you you have a very broad lens when you're working for the attorney general in that office and in that position, but at the same time, you know, while your uh, your aperture is a mile wide, uh, it's only an inch deep. Uh, you really only have time to uh, focus quickly on a, a number of issues. So there are all sorts of interesting issues that come to you every day, but you really only have time to pick them up for a minute, make a decision, and then move on to the next thing. Um, one of the reasons why I was so interested in moving down to the criminal division this year was because I am a, a, a lawyer by training. Uh, I'm a litigator, uh, and I missed uh, the ability to kind of get my hands in cases uh, and to take a little bit of a deeper dive on specific issues. So in the criminal division, obviously being the acting assistant attorney general, you still have a very broad lens. Uh, the, the criminal division does a lot of different things, uh, and I have a lot of responsibility in terms of overseeing those. But I do have more time to kind of do a deeper dive on each individual issue. Uh, I have the opportunity to get closer to individual cases and work more closely with the line prosecutors, um, which is, again, where my background was. So I think it's really the difference between uh, having a very wide uh, lens and uh, only limited ability to kind of get directly involved in issues versus having a little more time to get closer to issues and cases in the criminal division. Let's dig deep into... uh some of the things that you're working on in the criminal division. So we'll start with uh, opioids and, and, and drugs. In uh, 2019, approximately 72,000 Americans lost their lives to drug overdoses. Find every loss to addiction are families and friends who mourn in communities that suffer. Combating the opioid epidemic is a significant priority for the Trump administration and DOJ and the American people. I know the criminal division has uh, focused on this and, uh, and, and targeting the key contributors to this ongoing crisis, specifically the doctors and medical professionals. Could you give us a little bit of uh, background and some, maybe some of the specifics on what you're doing to target and, uh, and help our efforts in combating this epidemic? The criminal division's fraud section has been focused on healthcare fraud for a long time. It's kind of squarely within our mandate of protecting um, the public fisc against fraud. Um, as you know, many uh, patients uh, rely on Medicare and Medicaid, which are in turn uh, paid for by the federal government, um, or in the case of Medicaid, by the federal government and the states working together. So that's kind of squarely within what we do in the in the criminal division and within the fraud section. You know, as part of that, we we noticed uh, over the last uh, number of years that opioids were were kind of a growing problem, and so we made a a decision to shift our focus to concentrate a little bit more on combating. The opioid epidemic, and in particular, as it relates to certain areas of the country, uh, you know, the Appalachian area, where there, there has been a significant uptick in opioid abuse and uh, deaths uh, resulting from that. You know, and, and one thing that we, we noticed from our work was that those that are dying from opioid overdoses primarily get them uh, from two sources. The first is on the street from drug dealers, and the second is through prescriptions from, from doctors. And you know, the only way an addict or somebody who's dependent on opioids is going to get a prescription is for a doctor or another medical professional to provide it, to sign for it. You know, the overwhelming majority of doctors in America, I think we know and we found are honest professionals who are committed to the responsible treatment of their patients, the responsible use of opioid-based medications for legitimate reasons. But, you know, as in everything else, there are bad actors out there. And in the medical profession, you know, those bad actors, those individuals who are willing to abuse opioids or enable others to abuse op opioids, 
can really have a significant impact by providing addicts with access to something that can be very dangerous. So like based on more than 10 years of healthcare fraud casework, we know that the doctors are highly deterred through criminal prosecutions, meaning that if we put a doctor in prison for illegal conduct, his or her colleagues do take notice. They, they do sit up and pay attention when one of their colleagues goes to jail. Um, they realize that if they start acting like drug dealers, like criminals, the Justice Department's going to treat them like criminals and like drug dealers. Um, and they realize that the financial incentives for over-prescribing opioids or issuing illegitimate uh, prescriptions for opioids just isn't worth the risk of going to prison over it. Uh, so we found that you can have a tremendous effect on issues like this by going after bad, dishonest doctors. They're really a linchpin in, in the system. You know, we've also found that opioid overprescription and healthcare fraud are problems that we often see together in the same case. Every time a prescriber issues a prescription that a patient doesn't need, you know, there's a corresponding drain, Matt, on the healthcare system. In some cases, patients pay for doctor's visits out of their own pockets. But in many cases, as I was referring to earlier, they're covered by private insurance or Medicare or Medicaid, and, and those coverage systems typically pay. And when in the case of Medicare or Medicaid, it's really ultimately the taxpayers at the state and federal level that pay. Um, and they also pay for the resulting illegitimate prescriptions. You know, sometimes we found that once a bad doctor has hooked a patient on opioids, uh, they'll further inflate the bills by charging not only for the office visit to prescribe the opioids, but also uh, for uh, medically unnecessary tests and services that are, in fact, never provided. You know, these are all fraudulent practices that harm not only the patients in the case of opioid dependence, but also the healthcare system uh, and the federal fisc. You know, another common fact pattern that we noticed and that uh, has encouraged us to get involved in, in this space is, is something known as, as patient recruiting. We, we found that in a number of cases, patient recruiters will solicit Medicare beneficiaries sometimes in return for cash, sometimes in return for other benefits, to patronize specific clinics uh, that providers have to obtain prescriptions for opioids in their name, again, covered by insurance or government healthcare programs. The recruiters may go so far as to pick up patients at their homes and take them to one or a series of what we call pill mill clinics. Um, and they instruct them in terms of what to request from a doctor, how to describe their symptoms, um, and how to get unnecessary or illegitimate prescriptions from a corrupt doctor. Now, instead of taking those medications and using them for their own benefit, uh, we found that the patients, in effect, sell their controlled substance prescriptions to their recruiters, who often fill them and then divert the prescribed medications for further sale on the street. And the corrupt doctors that are involved in this scheme, for their part, receive cash in terms of kickbacks from the recruiters or in-kind benefits of being able to use these recruited patients' uh, insurance information, as I mentioned earlier, to bill for additional unnecessary or unprovided tests and services. So you, you really have a, a group of folks working together in concert, exploiting individuals who are addicted to opioids to prey on not only them, uh, but on the healthcare system, on private insurance, on Medicare and Medicaid as well. So, you know, we, we've identified these kind of interrelated problems over the last several years. They all dovetail uh, very closely with the work that we've traditionally done in the healthcare fraud space. And it's something that, you know, as we sat down and tried to allocate our resources and decide what we were going to focus on, we decided that this was somewhere where we could have a very positive benefit, where we could, we could really make a difference for both uh, those who are suffering from opioid addiction, uh, but also for the, the treasury as well. Let's talk a little bit about the doctors. We all know 
you know, there's millions of doctors in America. Most of them are fine, upstanding citizens um, in it for the right reasons. Um, how do you determine uh, which doctors to target when you're addressing this problem? I think you're absolutely right. There are millions of doctors in America and millions of patients who, as I said before, use opioids for completely appropriate reasons, medically necessary reasons. You know, I actually happen to be the son of a doctor. Um, and I know that the vast majority of doctors in America are honest professionals who are just trying to treat their patients in a responsible way. But there are certainly bad actors out there. Um, there's no question about that. And to find them, we use primarily data and data analysis. You know, for years, the division has been using and analyzing data to find individuals who are defrauding Medicare and other federal health care programs through the various schemes that I was talking about before. We've developed substantial expertise in data collection and data analysis. You know, we're continuously refining our methods to kind of comb through the data that's available to us to find outliers and kind of taking a look at, at a, a vast uh, data set and, and kind of identifying where the outliers are and then focusing investigative resources on them uh, and building cases uh, based on those leads. We don't bring cases based solely on data analysis. We always combine data analysis with more traditional investigative techniques. Um, but data analysis does allow us to quickly develop those leads to narrow our searches, to, to find that proverbial needle in a haystack um, so that we can then use our traditional law enforcement techniques and methods to determine whether we're seeing is just a unique but, but lawful practice or in fact something that is unlawful, something that's fraudulent that we need to focus on and potentially take action. So that's something that we've used for years in the healthcare fraud space more generally. And when we decided to put more of a focus on uh, the opioid crisis and how we could make uh, inroads there, we, we took that expertise and we adapted our model for use in the opioid crisis. We get data from a wide variety of sources and we've created parameters that help and continue to help us find dirty doctors. For example, doctors that are prescribing opioids that at extremely high levels, those that are claiming to see more opioid patients in a single day than a normal doctor would see in a, a week or a month. We can get that data, we can sort that data, and we can identify those outliers and then follow up with some of the more traditional techniques that I was talking about earlier. So the, the data analysis essentially gives us a list of potential leads and targets. And then we work with our investigative partners at the FBI, at HHS, OIG, DEA and other federal agencies to determine if what we're seeing, like I said, is reflective of uh, legitimate healthcare activity or instead illegal activity. Um, and then we work the cases, we build the evidence, and if they point to criminal activity and we believe we can prove it, we will uh, we will bring cases and charge those individuals. Um, I know you've got a large um, healthcare fraud unit, but the battle's uh, large. You know, how do you determine you know how to focus your efforts, where to focus your efforts, and um, what help are you getting from other parts of the department? In the first instance, we let data dictate where we were going to focus our enforcement efforts. When we first began this initiative, um, we looked at the data that was available to us, and we were pretty quickly able to identify what I would call hotspots for opioid abuse, opioid overdose fatalities. And we made the decision to kind of surge resources in those areas to try to bring help to them as, as quickly and effectively as we we possibly could. Those areas were Alabama, Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, West Virginia, Virginia, and associated regions. We used data to identify the communities within those areas that were suffering the most. 
uh, from the opioid crisis. And we surged our resources there to bring those folks relief. You know, based on our analysis, uh, we, we created what we've called the Appalachian Regional Prescription Opioid or ARPO Strike Force. And we deployed prosecutors with experience prosecuting doctors and other types of healthcare fraud to these overdose hotspots to try to build cases against doctors and other enablers who are prescribing uh, illegal opioids to those who are dependent on them. But it's also important to note that we can't be successful and we haven't been successful without the support and the partnership of prosecutors in the U.S. attorney's offices in these hotspots. You know, in particular, the Middle District of Tennessee and the Eastern District of Kentucky have been particularly strong partners, and they really serve and have served as hubs for the work that we're doing in these regions. These offices have great leadership and fantastic prosecutors with a significant amount of experience in the healthcare fraud space, and they've devoted significant time and resources to support the criminal division and the department's efforts to tackle the opioid crisis. You know, they know how the courts operate in that part of the country. They know how to get things done there. And most importantly, they are closest to and, and really most familiar with the communities, often, you know, very rural communities that we're trying to help through this important initiative. So essentially, it's been kind of a one-two punch combining our laser focus um, and expertise on healthcare fraud uh, with the on-the-ground expertise um, and the resources of these regional U.S. attorney's offices. And that's really allowed us to move quickly and very effectively with our partners to bring as much help as we possibly can, as quickly as we possibly can, to these communities that are really suffering the most from the opioid epidemic. That's tremendous work. Maybe dive in a little bit to the um, the speed at which you, uh, you go. I know sometimes it takes a while to bring a case. Why is speed important? when we're, we're talking about uh, addressing this problem? You know, we're, we're targeting in this effort doctors and other enablers who are illicitly prescribing very high levels of opioids to addicts and otherwise vulnerable people in some of the poorest areas of the country. You know, these supposed medical professionals are using their positions of trust to exploit a very vulnerable patient base in most cases, a patient base that is often very disadvantaged. These patients need our help, and frankly, they need it yesterday. By acting quickly, we're able to take bad actors and bad doctors' ability to write abusive prescriptions away as quickly as possible. And in doing so, we also deter other medical professionals from getting into this sort of business in the first place. So really, the speed helps us uh, or enables us to get relief to these communities quickly, and it also enables us to hopefully cut off this conduct uh, in other individuals before it even occurs. Quick prosecutions, Matt, I think we found really mean a quick reduction in supply. Uh, and that can translate to lives saved, which is really, you know, at the heart of what we're trying to do here. A number of our cases, Matt, I think really show how quickly, you know, we are moving here. Uh, for example, on August 10th of this year, so again, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, a jury in the Southern District of West Virginia convicted Dr. Ricky Powder shelled on 17 counts of unlawfully dispensing opioids. And those charges stemmed from the doctor's role in prescribing opioids that had essentially no legitimate medical purpose and that were outside the usual course of professional practice, including, uh, we alleged at trial and proved the trial, exchanging prescriptions for cash and requests for sexual favors and female companionship uh, from patients. Um, so really, truly reprehensible conduct. The matter is pending sentencing, but we charged the case in September of 2019. So we were able to charge that case 
and bring it to a verdict uh, in the community uh, in less than a year uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, which I really think speaks to the speed at which we're trying to move here and the resources that we've devoted to these cases. So Matt, just to kind of sum it all up, in these cases, we are targeting those doctors and medical professionals who are poisoning their communities, all of whom have professions and livelihoods on the line, and will often put up a rigorous defense and and go to trial. Um, Drug and fraud crimes are serious offenses that can carry potentially long prison sentences. So as with every federal prosecution, it's essential uh, and necessary that our evidence prove criminal conduct beyond a reasonable doubt. But with patient lives at stake and with communities that are suffering so much from the opioid epidemic, we really can't afford to investigate indefinitely, digging for every last bit of evidence of a potential crime that these defendants may have committed. Uh, What our model that we've put together allows us to do is to quickly identify, investigate, and charge serious misconduct and to quickly move cases from investigation to indictment to conviction. You know, the average time uh, from case initiation in, in this initiative to indictment has been six months, frequently takes much longer. But, but in this instance, we've recognized the importance of the problem. We've surged resources and we've tried to move as quickly as we can while still being mindful of the need to investigate these cases and improve them at trial. Anybody who's, uh, you know, been on somewhat involved, at least tangentially in law enforcement knows that, you know, the criminals don't really take a day off. And it seems like once you address one problem, another one pops up. How would you define success here? How, how will you know you've made a difference now that you've been at this for more than a year? It never ceases to amaze me how creative criminals can be and how smart they can be. Uh, I almost call it kind of criminal arbitrage. When you push back on one area, criminal activity pops up somewhere else. They're very adept at finding uh, seams in the system and exploiting those for their own criminal purposes. One often wonders whether uh, these folks, if they were to dedicate their their ingenuity and their smarts to actual um, legitimate activity, uh, how successful and smart they could be. You know, I think we've we've indisputably been successful, and I think we're we're absolutely making a difference here. Uh, in total, through the ARPO initiative that I mentioned earlier, uh, we've brought cases charging seventy three defendants. Uh, of which 53 were opioid prescribers and pharmacists who prescribed or dispensed approximately 50 million prescription opioid pills. 41 of these defendants were doctors. And to date, 30 of the ARPO defendants have pleaded guilty and two additional defendants have been convicted at trial. Uh, In terms of the time that we've been working on this ARPO initiative, those are really significant results. Those are real meaningful numbers that, that reflect a significant amount of work by the Department of Justice, by the Criminal Division, and by our U.S. Attorney's Office partners. We've, we've really made a commitment to this uh, initiative, and I think it's indisputable that it's, it's showing results. So, you know, Matt, in addition to those numbers, I think, I think we're going to continue to look at the data to see how successful we've been. You know, data analysis has been very helpful in terms of helping us build these cases. And I think data analysis is something that we, we have returned to and that we're going to continue to return to over time to assess um, how we're doing uh, and where we need to change uh, or refocus our efforts. So I think we're going to follow uh, the numbers in this case. And uh, if they tell us that we need to add communities, we will. If they tell us that we're making a difference in communities such that we can refocus our resources, we'll do that too. But I think the data that I mentioned just a few moments ago and the data that we're seeing right now 
absolutely shows that we're making a difference, but it also shows that we have a lot more work to do. And, and that's why we're committed to this for the long haul. That's great. It's um, incredibly promising as well. Um, you can't really talk about opioids without talking about the issue of treatment as well. So I um, wanted to turn to that next. Um, many of those who are addicted will just you know, maybe turn to another dirty doctor or find heroin being sold on the street or what have you. Um, how do you address the challenge of the, the treatment challenge to make, make sure you're making a difference in the lives of those who are abusing the drug in the first place? It's, it's a really difficult issue, Matt. You know, when we were bringing our first uh, takedown of a lot of cases, of a large number of cases in April 2019, uh, we, we thought long and hard about the treatment question. And, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, this initiative isn't just about arresting bad guys. It isn't just about putting numbers on the board or protecting the Treasury and Medicare and Medicaid. It's about helping people. It's about protecting individuals in the communities that we're targeting. And it's about uh, saving lives, ultimately. Obviously, you know, treatment isn't our area of expertise. You know, we're the Department of Justice. We, we go after bad guys. Um, but this is absolutely something that we, we have to think about. And it's something that we do think about. We knew uh, when we got into this that with more than uh, 50 doctors and other medical professionals being arrested in that first takedown that I mentioned, all in one, one day, all in one morning, uh, throughout different regions in Appalachia, we were going to see patients showing up at doctor's offices across numerous communities and, and a number of different states, all in need of, of help. Folks that were addicted to opioids uh, who couldn't just cut themselves off cold turkey, that, that really needed uh, help and treatment. Um, and we wanted to be uh, part of the solution to provide them that help. So what we did was we partnered with state and federal health professionals to ensure the treatment was made available uh, to anybody uh, who needed it, um, who was a patient of the individuals who we were, were taking down, who we were arresting. We worked together uh, with partners of ours at the Centers for Disease Control and other local agencies at the state level and at the local level to ensure that those affected patients could have continued access to care to treatment, to counseling, you know, and at the same time, we're redirected from uh, the more abusive doctors that we were targeting with our operations to legitimate medical professionals in their communities uh, who could provide them with actual counseling, with actual treatment, and with actual help to make a positive impact on their addiction, as opposed to just exploiting them for criminal purposes. So that's absolutely, we, we absolutely have to think about this question anytime we take down a doctor that's exploiting and abusing a large patient community. So uh, what's next? Um, how long do you expect to be using this model? When we, we first got into this, we, we made commitments to these communities that we've surged resources to, that we would be in this for the long haul. This wasn't just something that where we, were, where we would come, we would arrest a bunch of bad guys, get a bunch of headlines and move on. That's not what we're trying to do here. We, we plan to stay in these communities until the data, the data that I mentioned earlier, tells us that it's okay to move on, that we've really made a concrete improvement in the communities in terms of uh, folks' dependence on opioids. You know, we believe we're well on our way to achieving that goal. I think the data is pointing in a better direction. Um, I think the numbers uh, show us that we're actually making a concrete difference. We are stopping corrupt medical professionals in their tracks. Um, we're providing services or arranging to have services provided to those in need and we're really working to prevent the next tragic loss of an individual in these communities uh, to the opioid epidemic. These cases have become very important to the Department of Justice, to the criminal division. Um, it's something that 
that we can point to and, and, and really know that we're making a difference in people's lives. You know, if we can save one more life in connection with this law enforcement operation, I think that'll really have, have made the effort, effort worth it. So we're, we're certainly committed to this. What other sections other than fraud in the criminal division are uh, involved in this fight? With the opioid epidemic, um, we've got a number of different sections involved. One, one section in particular is the narcotics and dangerous drug section in the criminal division or NDDS. Um, they're directly involved in our work in this area, particularly as it relates to combating the smuggling of deadly illegal fentanyl and fentanyl analogs from Mexico and China. So in addition to NDDS, in addition to fraud, we also have another, several other sections of the criminal division involved as well. It, it truly is an all-hands effort. For example, we have an organized crime and gang section as well, OCGS, and I think they've really had a meaningful impact as well in addition to the fraud section and in addition to NDDS's work. I wanted to dive in a little bit. You mentioned organized crime and the organized crime and gang section. When most people hear organized crime, they think, oh, the mafia. What exactly has OCGS, Organized Crime and Gang Section, been doing to combat the opioid crisis? Well, well that's exactly right. I mean, one of, one of OCGS's traditional focuses has, in fact, been organized crime. Now, that, that can mean many things. That can mean the mafia, as you point out. It can also mean transnational criminal organizations uh, and cartels um, that operate in the United States and globally. You know, the section's mission, though, is much, much broader than just focusing on what we would traditionally think about here is, is organized crime. You know, generally speaking, OCGS prosecutes organized crime groups that, that operate internationally, nationally, and regionally, that is in, in kind of multiple jurisdictions around the country um, and around the world. The OCGS mission includes, you know, the targeting of, of organized criminal groups that engage in uh, illegal activity, including narcotics trafficking, uh, and specifically including the illegal and fraudulent prescription and trafficking of, of opioids. One thing that, that really helps OCGS in this area, uh, that helps them kind of tackle these organizations that are involved in uh, illicit drug trafficking, a particularly potent weapon, is the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, or RICO statute. You know, RICO is, is frequently deployed by the department against organized criminal groups. Again, going back to the mafia that you mentioned earlier, you may have heard about it in connection with the great work that the department historically did to dismantle organized crime in that area. But it's actually a much broader statute than that. I mean, it, it's, it's not limited to that context. Um, and it's something that, that, that OCGS can and does bring to bear in the department's fight on a number of different fronts, including the opioid epidemic. So anybody who's watched a cop show has probably heard the term RICO. Can you give us a little bit of an idea for us non-lawyers and non-prosecutors, maybe a little bit about what that means. I'm going to simplify a great, a great deal here. So any lawyers listening to this podcast may cringe a little bit. <laughs> um, but for our lay audience, you know, RICO is a statute that essentially allows us to target criminal organizations more effectively. It allows us to bring charges against the leadership and the members of criminal organizations for taking steps to uh, advance the work and advance the goals of the organization or for directing others to do so. So it's really, you know, a tool that allows us to kind of take disparate crimes that are committed on behalf of or in support of or in furtherance of an organized enterprise and to prosecute that kind of holistically and to really target and go after the leaders uh, and the supervisors within that criminal organization. 
That's great. How have you been able to use RICO to uh, address and tackle the opioid crisis? You know, for one thing, Matt, I think we found that, that RICO is a particularly effective tool or has the potential to be a particularly effective tool uh, in opioid trafficking cases and, and pill mill cases. You know, RICO allows prosecutors to include in, in one indictment, in one case, uh, a, a wide range of types of defendants, uh, you know, regardless of their significance in the organization or, or their role. It, the statute also allows prosecutors to include, again, in, in one indictment, in one case, a variety of different charges, including narcotics trafficking charges, maintaining drug premises charges, money laundering charges, fraud charges. Uh, a lot of these crimes often go together. So you'll have uh, a combination of, of illegal dispensation of drugs combined with more traditional healthcare fraud like patient recruitment uh, efforts, kickbacks, uh, billing fraud, and that sort of thing. One of the things RICO does is really allows us to bundle those, those charges up into, into one case and bring it together in a much more efficient vehicle. And, and, and finally, Matt, the statute is particularly useful and helpful in allowing us to target organizations that operate across multiple federal jurisdictions. So if there's an organization that's, that's operating regionally or nationally uh, and a defendant's kind of taking actions in various spots around the country, we don't have to charge them in multiple places. We can bring one case uh, in one jurisdiction. What about uh, OCGS and the work that they've done in this space? Can you speak to that maybe a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I can give you an example. And, and this is something that, that's relatively new for OCGS and, and, and we're, we're looking to kind of expand on and, and deploy this tool further as we uh, move forward. OCGS wrapped up a, a three-month trial in a significant RICO pill mill case in the Eastern District of Tennessee. And the case really arose out of the operation of, of pain management clinics by the Urgent Care and Surgery Center, or UCSC, uh, that was originally located in South Florida and then had some, some branches in East Tennessee. What these clinics were, to put it bluntly, were pill mills where medical providers wrote unreasonable and, and medically unnecessary prescriptions for opioids and other narcotics for patients who were addicted. In early 2009, so this case dates back quite a while, three co-owners, two of them were Italian defendants, Luca Sartini and Luigi Palma, uh, and a third, Benjamin Rodriguez, opened a UCSC pill mill clinic in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, and there was another woman, Sylvia Hofstetter, whom they hired to uh, help them manage that clinic. Now, Sartini, Palma, and Rodriguez had, um, you know, when they brought Hofstetter on board, already agreed to expand their operations to Tennessee. And in 2010, they opened a number of UCSC pill mills in the Knoxville, Tennessee region. And they again turned to Hofstetter to manage the pill mill clinics um, and build client volume. Now, we, we first began looking at this operation in 2013 when the FBI opened an investigation into the Tennessee UCSC pill mills. And these pill mills were seen as the, the most egregious of, of dozens in the business that were fueling the opioid epidemic at the time. The FBI conducted a raid on all of the UCSC pill mills in March 2015. At that time, over 100 people were arrested and uh, a number of pill mills in Tennessee uh, were searched and ultimately closed uh, by the Bureau. Our investigation found uh, that the owners and operators who I mentioned before made over $21 million from the Tennessee pill mills alone, uh, and the providers at the Tennessee clinics prescribed over 11 million opioid pills in just three and a half years. 
And you know, Matt, the facts here are, are really tragic. OCGS indicted the most culpable participants in the scheme, the owners and operators that I was talking about earlier, Sartini, Palma, Rodriguez, and Hofstetter. And we were able to use the RICO statute that I was talking about a little bit earlier to charge them with RICO conspiracy and a number of other offenses. Now, one of the five defendants pleaded guilty to RICO conspiracy charges. And late last year, four defendants, including Hofstetter, were tried in uh, the Eastern District of Tennessee. Hofstetter was, was convicted of RICO conspiracy, and her co-defendants in that trial were convicted of other drug-related crimes, and they're all currently awaiting sentencing. One thing I think it's important to add, too, as to the defendants who haven't been tried and convicted yet, the allegations in our indictment and that I'm talking about here today are, of course, only allegations, and they need to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. It's a great uh, deep dive into uh, what the criminal division here at the Department of Justice is doing uh, to combat the opioid crisis. And I know there's uh, many other departments across the administration uh, as a whole who are involved in this as well. But uh, this has been great. Uh, Brian, any parting thoughts, anything you want to leave with folks who are listening today? Well, Matt, I'll just pick up on one thing you, you just mentioned, which is that this really has been a joint effort, both within the Department of Justice. You know, the criminal division has obviously been carrying the flag on this with the ARPO strike force. Um, it's something that we're very committed to. But as I mentioned earlier, um, we couldn't do this without the support of our U.S. Attorney's Office partners as well as our uh, partners at, at other federal agencies, including in particular law enforcement agencies. Um, I think I mentioned earlier HHS, OIG, FBI, DEA, of course, uh, and a number of other key partners. So really, it's been a whole of government approach. And I think the reason, Matt, why you've seen so many folks um, go all in on this is because this is, this is criminal activity that is really decimating a number of communities uh, in a number of key areas throughout you know, middle America. Uh, it's it's costing us lives, uh, often young lives, and it's really destroying communities and it's destroying families. And so it's something that we're committed to uh, pursuing. Um, it's something that we're committed to combating. And, and we really want to make a difference here. I think we have made a difference. We've, we've brought a lot of resources to bear on this. We're in this for the long haul. We're making a difference, but our job's not done yet. And we're going to keep fighting this fight. You know, I've, I've heard it often said that everybody knows somebody who's affected by this, whether it's a family member or a friend. So I uh, commend you and your team there and uh, your prosecutors and everyone there who's working on this. Uh, tremendous job. So and thanks for joining us today, Brian. Great, Matt. Thanks. Thanks. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the uh, division's important work in this area. Thank you very much. addiction to opioids, including prescription pain relievers, heroin, and synthetic opioids such as fentanyl, is a serious national crisis. The Department of Justice has partnered with educators, treatment professionals, and nonprofit organizations to bring awareness and develop strategies and solutions to fight the opioid epidemic. If you or someone you know suffers from opioid addiction, get help by visiting findtreatment.gov or by calling the national hotline at one 800 662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. Both the website and hotline are run by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, an agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 
Thank you to Brian and Matt for sharing what DOJ and the criminal division are doing to combat the opioid crisis. Thank you for listening and please stay tuned for more from the Department of Justice. Visit justice.gov slash podcast to subscribe. The Justice Beat is produced by the Justice Department's Office of Public Affairs. Find out more about the Justice Department at justice.gov 